0: Today's programme is entirely about sweet things. We speak to one of Cambridge's beekeepers to find out about honey and how bees work. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who for some reason or another find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. Let's get right on with today's topic. It was by chance that I met Steve Poyser, give a talk at a village event. He keeps hundreds of thousands of bees, and so I went to see him.
1: I am a hobby beekeeper who, for various reasons, have ended up keeping up to 20 hives of bees for my own personal use, and then the surplus honey is disposed of. But I have become a member of the Cambridge Beekeepers Association and have been for 30 years, and have past been... Uh, secretary, chairman, show secretary.
0: Now, you're going to help fill in some gaps in my education about bees.
1: Well, the first thing to understand is the bees, in that there is only one species of honeybee within the UK, but there are over 20 types of bumblebee and over 200 sorts of solitary bee. So we're dealing with only one specific insect, the honeybee.
0: First question that comes to mind, what is honey?
1: Honey is a collection of nectars which the bees will collect take back to the hive, they do not collect honey, they collect nectar from the flowers, which is basically a bribe given by the flowers to enable the bees to come to pollinate the flowers. And the act of pollination is a byproduct of the bees robbing the flowers of the nectar. They bring that nectar back, it will have a water content of between 30% and 90%, depending on the different flowers. The bees have to then evaporate the moisture out of that which they do within the hive to get it down to 20% or below in order for it to become honey. They cannot store it above 20% moisture, otherwise it will ferment. So they have to reduce the moisture content down. And depending on what flowers they've been feeding on, that's how you arrive at different honeys with colour, flavour, aroma, texture, speed of setting. All of that is dictated by the bees. The honey itself is a combination of sugars once they have done the processing with about 79% sugar of different sorts and this is fructose, dextrose, sucrose and other bits and pieces. There is only about 3% of other things within the honey which actually makes the difference between different flavours. The vast majority of it is exactly the same. And you cannot artificially make honey. You can only have honey from honeybees, because at the process of them evaporating the moisture out, they absorb some honey within to their, what they call a honey stomach, and then they pass it backwards and forwards between bees, regurgitating it and evaporating the moisture away, adding amino acids and other things from within themselves. That is what will create the honey.
0: Okay, is it a product of digestion of some
1: kind. It's not digestion no they never actually digest it they have effectively a series of stomachs and they hold it in the first stomach and can regurgitate it. If it goes beyond the first stomach then they will consume the honey and use it as fuel for themselves or they have the ability having eaten some honey to effectively decide I'm not going to use it as fuel I'm going to make wax and they will convert that honey into beeswax and exude particles of beeswax from special glands which they're then able to make into their comb. So honey can, by a single insect, either be used as fuel or be converted into beeswax.
0: Goodness me. So the beeswax is a converted product. Converted uh, honey
1: within the bee. And it takes them between five and seven pounds of honey to make a pound of beeswax.
0: That's the most expensive bit.
1: That is, yes, if, if you're a beekeeper trying to produce honey, then you try to recycle as much wax as possible within the beehive, by extracting the honey, leaving the cells virtually intact, so that when they go back in, the bees can refill them with honey, but they don't have to rebuild all the wax cells.
0: Because that's going to cost you you
1: a lot of production, yes. And time and effort by the bees, because it takes them a lot of time as well to actually make beeswax. Because it's not just one bee that makes it, there will be hundreds all clustered together, trying to generate enough heat to exude these particles of beeswax from one another, and then with their mouth and their front legs and Head parts. They will be able to manipulate these into hexagonal cells, all of which are identical, all of which slightly slope downhill to a centre spine. They are diagonally and horizontally slightly offset from the ones the other side of the frame, so that they all interlock at the bottom to give the strength to hold the the weight of the honey when it's in the cells.
0: It must be awesome to think how this comes together.
1: Yes, the conception of sort of humans trying to do something equivalent is is very difficult to understand because Obviously, they're not writing down things, there's no foreman, there are no computers involved, and yet all of these bees will be working several inches apart in the dark, producing identical cells of wax, all of which interlock together with no blueprint.
0: Okay. Tell me about the exploration for okay. honey.
1: Honey bees will fly up to a mile and a half in any direction from the hive. So a three-mile diameter circle from the hive, that is their collecting range at their normal range. When a bee goes off, it goes off Usually, having been told by the other bees what to go and collect, and that's all done by bee dances within the hive, mm-hmm. so it goes off with a, a, an, in a known direction to collect a product, and that product is often nectar. It will bring the nectar back, and then it will regurgitate that into the hive so that the other bees can then work it and off it will go back and, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. Because a honeybee, when it hatches during the spring and summer lives for about six weeks. The first three weeks it's in the hive, doing hive duties, cleaning, making wax, processing honey, feeding the young bees. It's only for the last three weeks of its life it flies. And in those three weeks it's actually flying, basically flat out, back and forth, weather permitting, collecting either nectar, pollen, water or propolis. Those are the four things the bees will collect. One bee in its lifetime will collect enough nectar to process to be made into approximately one-twelfth of a teaspoonful of honey. Wow. So if people see a honeybee and they try to revive it because it's looking a bit dopey or a bit lost, then actually it's a, a cost negative if they're feeding it more than a twelfth of a teaspoonful of honey because it's going to have consumed or wasted more than that than it could possibly have collected in its life.
0: Is it bee negative equity?
1: It is. Similarly, the... Distances involved: one bee flying a mile and a half in each direction to collect this nectar. Mm-hmm. If one bee collected all of the, the nectar to produce one jar of honey, that's a pound of honey, it would have to fly the equivalent of 43,000 miles just to collect enough nectar to produce one jar of honey. Similarly, it would have to visit approximately 2 million flowers.
0: So the whole thing works on scale, does it
1: not? It works on scale in the sheer number of bees. In a in a colony in the spring there will be maybe ten thousand worker bees. By the time we get to midsummer there could be fifty or sixty thousand in there.
0: Of which box. in one
1: in one hive, yes. Or one colony if it lives in somebody's roof. As I say, approximately thirty thousand of those will be flying in and out collecting these products that they bring back to the hive.
0: Is there such a thing as a wild hive?
1: There are feral colonies of bees where there is a wild colony of honeybees, often in people's roofs or in their uh, outhouses or in holes in trees. The problems that beekeepers and bees have had over the last ten years have resulted in there, certainly in Cambridgeshire, being no truly feral colonies of bees left. All of them will have died out over that period of time. And what will have happened is that people will perceive that there is still a colony of bees in their roof, but actually a swarm will have come from a beekeeper and will have taken up residence where the old colony has died out. So they will still see bees going in and out of their chimney, saying the bees are still there. But in truth, the colony that was there has died out, and then after a period of time then a new swarm will have taken up residence because of the Varroa parasite, which has caused decimation within the bees. And if they're not treated for, then that's where the feral colonies will fall down and decline. And every three years or so, any feral colony, if it's not maintained by a beekeeper, will disappear. Goodness
0: bee seems to know where its home is, does it not?
1: They do. As I say, the first three weeks of their life, they're in the hive. They will then start to do exploratory flights, and they will fly from the hive. You will see them hovering in front of the hive, and my perception is that they are building a map of where their hive is, and gradually the distance they fly from the hive becomes greater so that they can then work their way back to the hive. All of their flying is done in relation to the sun. So the messages they pass to one another within the hive is they're telling other bees to fly in a certain direction in relation to the sun and they will be telling them how far to fly and this is all given in the waggle dance which the bees do in the dark in the hive on a vertical face of a frame. So they give all this information out the bee builds up a map of where it is and it then flies backwards and forwards. So they do develop a homing instinct as to where they're coming back to and the rule for beekeepers is that you move a hive either less than three feet or more than three miles. You move it less than three feet so that if you move it just a couple of feet when the bee comes back having flown from where it was it will come back, realize the hive is not there but it's so close that actually the chemical scents coming out of the hive will attract it in and it will just believe it's made a slight mistake as to where it's coming back to. If you move it more than three miles when the bee leaves the hive the mile and a half it flies will not then cross over onto the map it's already built, so it will be developing a new map. So it won't be going back to where it originally came from. If you moved it from one side of a garden to another, or a half a mile away, the bees would leave in the morning from the new location, but then whilst they're out, they will then come back to where they used to come from, on the other side of the garden. So at that point you would end up with a lot of angry bees on one side of the garden, with no home, because as far as they're concerned, they've lost their home, so they would become very agitated, whereas the hive sitting on the other side of the garden, bees would be leaving it but not coming back to it. Only the ones that are just starting to fly would be building up a new map based on that location. So if you want to move a beehive across from one side of a garden to another, you either have to do it in stages over a matter of a couple of weeks, or you have to move them three miles away, leave them at least four weeks so all the flying bees die, then bring them back, And then they'll be okay.
0: And is there a time of day when they're all in the hive?
1: Yes, they they tend to need a minimum of 12 degrees to fly properly, centigrade. So usually late evening is the best time. So if you're moving a colony of bees, you wait until the evening because that's when they'll all be in.
0: Okay, now you said that you had several... Hives, so they never get mixed up and go back to the wrong house?
1: Very rarely. If you have all the beehives in a straight row, you end up with what's called drifting, where if there's a prevailing wind from left to right, then gradually all the bees on the right end of the row of bees will have fewer bees in them and the one at the extreme left, because the bees will gradually drift across the one next door, because if they're all in a row. The reason that they're allowed to drift is that if a bee comes back loaded with a product that it's collected, then it will be accepted into a hive. If it comes back empty, it's not accepted in, because each colony has different pheromones and different chemical smells within them, so they know which are the true bees coming back to the hive. And that's why when wasps are trying to get in, they will be defended and pushed out in the in the autumn, because they don't smell of the colony. But once a wasp is in, it can then become sort of covered in the, the smell of the colony, so it can then quite happily fly backwards and forwards and it's accepted ...as a bee.
0: Goodness me. They say they're social. What does that mean in this? Well, they
1: are social in that a colony will consist... ...if we take it as being the middle of the summer... ...there will be one queen... ...and there will be perhaps two or three hundred drones... ...which are the males... ...and there could be 50,000 workers. All of those workers... ...are working for the benefit of the colony. They are not working for the benefit of themselves. They are are a social insect. Bearing in mind they only live for six weeks all of the nectar they will collect and the honey they will make is actually for the benefit of the colony to survive the winter. It's not for their own benefit. So they are collecting all of this, whether they know it or not, but they won't be alive to actually consume the honey when it comes to the autumn and the winter.
0: Actually, a lot of people would say bees are pretty antisocial because they come into our barbecues and they make (laughs) us all scared.
1: Honeybees generally are more inquisitive than uh, antisocial. They... They don't tend to like people. Um, There is no benefit in them coming near people. They are really either inquisitive because you have a scent that smells like a bee or smells like a flower. So you can be attracted either by detergents, shampoos, scents or even just clothes. So that will attract a bee and they will be inquisitive. It is very, very rare for a bee to be aggressive unless you are actually doing something to the colony or they are upset for some reason. They don't like thunderstorms. So they can become aggressive if that's the situation. And you never place a beehive in close proximity to an electrical cable, either underground or overhead, because the magnetic forces of those agitate the bees and they don't like them.
0: You've, you've observed this? Uh, it
1: is well known, yes. You do not put beehives either under pylons or under overhead cables or certainly on top of underground cables.
0: Well, I can buy all kinds of honey. I can buy the white honey, I can buy the clear honey... Clarify what... Ah, there's a word. (laughs) Clarify the difference between the two.
1: Right. All honey will set eventually, just as a result of the nature of the sugar content of it. So, oilseed rape honey will set within a week of the fields going from yellow to green. And it will set solid in the hive to such a degree that the bees won't even be able to eat it without them fetching water to dilute it. Lime honey will take maybe four years to set and it takes a very long time to crystallise. The beekeeper will usually take off the honey from the hive and will then store it and allow it to set. That first set tends to produce quite coarse crystals of sugar. Then the beekeeper will warm it up to a degree and to liquefy it and will then either process it by filtering and putting it into jars and selling it as liquid honey or they will blend it with a honey that has already set And that is what produces what you call the white honey, which is creamed honey, where the sugar crystals that you have already allowed to set, you blend at a rate of about 10% of those to to 90% of liquid honey, which then stimulates all of the whole of that honey by mixing that very thoroughly to set to the same consistency of the seeded crystals that you put in. That's how you end up with a margarine type spread of set honey. Similarly, those crystals can be melted down, so by merely warming that jar of honey up, it will go back to liquid honey, and it will be impossible to tell it from a jar of liquid honey next to it.
0: Goodness me. You said ageing had something to do with the setting.
1: Yes. The, 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 the
0: stuff in the shop doesn't seem to turn from brownie liquid to white creamy, does it?
1: No, it, it will eventually, and there's nothing wrong with it. It is a natural process, and it's actually a sign of quality where it starts to granulate. People will perceive that a jar of liquid honey that suddenly got what looks like bits of grit and granules at the bottom of it or halfway up the jar, it must be going off. No, it's actually a sign of quality, those sugar crystals just growing in the honey. In order to liquefy it again, you just warm it up slightly and it will go back to a liquid state and away you go again. So there is no need to actually throw honey away that has started to crystallise.
0: What is the benchmark of good honey?
1: Now, all honey will taste differently depending on what the flowers are. Personally, I like the light, what I would call aromatic flowery honey, which tends to be quite light in colour. Other people like very dark honey, which can be ivy or one of the sort of uh, more tree based honeys as opposed to flowers. So they will produce a darker honey, which tends to be thicker, stronger in flavour, very. Pungent, and you don't need much of it to significantly impart that flavour through the whole of the product you're trying to eat. Whereas the more floral honeys, you would.
0: Hmm. Brought to mind a programme the other week about the commercial hives, where people take lorries and train loads of beehives to certain parts of California yes. to pollinate the almond Almonds. crops and so on, and off to Florida mm. to do the. Yes. Citrus. Does that exist in this country?
1: Nothing to the same degree. The problems that the American beekeepers have had, which they have classified as colony collapse disorder, has not been experienced within the UK. It is thought, particularly by British beekeepers, to be as a result of the significant distances, thousands of miles, these bees are transported, and perhaps three or 400 hives of bees on one lorry, all taken to one location and then placed in the middle of almond groves wider in scope than the one and a half miles the bees can fly so the only thing the bees can feed on are almonds. Almonds produce very little nectar so in order to keep the bees alive they are actually fed sugar syrup at the same time as only collecting a single pollen from the almonds because there's very little nectar. So. If a bee is transported thousands of miles, placed with hundreds of other colonies in close proximity, fed a single food with only artificial sugar syrup, then they wonder why their bees are stressed. Stress is one of the things that will kill bees. They've also now got the varroa mite in America, so that's also causing them issues. All of these things, unfortunately, have resulted, we believe as beekeepers, or I do, that this is what has actually caused the problems within America. We do not have the same problems within the UK.
0: Who's doing research on this kind of thing?
1: The Americans are doing a lot of research, of course, because almonds are huge in in America. People who have bee hives over there have said that my father kept bees and and took them to the almonds. We never had the same problem. The difference was that in those days, the Americans also imported a huge amount of macadamia nuts, and the American government took a decision to subsidise the Californian almond growing. Huge areas were put down to almonds, Uh, Now, there is nothing but almonds for miles and miles, whereas beekeepers could, in 30 years ago, have taken their bees to almonds, which may have been the only thing for a quarter of a mile, but actually there were still other things nearby. Mm. Now, anything other than an almond has been killed off. No weeds, no vegetation, it's just almonds as far as you can see. Now they have a problem.
0: Steve, that is fascinating. Thank you very much. That was Steve Poyser. You can find out more about this from the Cambridgeshire Beekeepers Association. Their website is www.cbka.org.uk And if you run a community group, you might like to invite them to one of your events. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio, Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website www.cambridge105.fm you can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes Store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Crease. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105.